Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 331 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Lyme Inspired Nurse with Brianna Jamshidi. My name is Sarah Bruner. And I'm Matt Sabatello, and I'm so excited to be here with our friend Sarah Brunner from Canada. She was on episode 65 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast titled, I Did Everything You're Supposed to Do, and I Still Got Stick. Sarah has been such an inspiration for Tick Bootcamp throughout the last three years, and we're really excited to share with you Brianna's journey from the perspective of Sarah. Brianna was part of the National Guard. Uh, her symptoms began slower with some misdiagnosed UTIs turning into multiple misdiagnosed UTIs over a few years until she finally saw a nurse practitioner who did the lab work, made the diagnosis. She started treatment. She started to make headway and then eventually took her treatment protocols a little bit into her own hands, making a mixed approach. Brianna now works in the ICU, helping patients recover, and she wants to take the same steps and help others becoming a nurse practitioner to help people who have also been affected by Lyme disease. Hi, Bri. Thank you so much for coming on the Tick Bootcamp podcast. I'm really excited to be here co-hosting today. I want to jump right into it because I know everyone's probably really eager to hear your story. So uh, give us a little bit of information about you, where you live, what you do, where did you grow up? Sure. Um, so I currently live in Charleston, South Carolina right now, but I am originally from South Jersey. Um, I grew up in South Jersey. I moved to Westchester, Pennsylvania, if anyone is familiar with that area, right outside of Philadelphia. And then I moved to Philadelphia. Um, and then I moved to Charleston in 2019. Um, so growing up, very active. Um, I played sports. I played soccer, did gymnastics growing up. Um, just really grew up very active. I have very distinct memories of running, um, like doing the Spartan races, you know, those kind of things. Um, loved going to concerts and like music festivals and pretty much did all sorts of um, outdoor activities until I got sick with Lyme disease. So, I mean, I could go into more detail than that, but <laughs> um, just very outdoorsy kind of gal. So basically you led a really active life. You love being outdoors. It sounds like you uh, really liked a lot of physical challenges. It's mm -hmm. racing. That's I, not something I've done, but it sounds like a challenge. Um, what about other dreams and goals? Like, were you pursuing anything prior to when you got sick? Well, so my, I had just graduated college. So I was trying to remember correctly. I was in my senior year of college, I believe, um, when I started getting sick. Um, and I graduated, um, my first degree is in business management and I was doing, um, personal training. I had my own business online as a personal trainer and I was doing small group fitness, um, at a local gym. So my, my plan that I, I was, my dream that I was doing was personal training. Um, and so obviously with that it requires you to be in shape and to be demoing act, um, exercises and doing the exercises with the clients most of the time. Um, so that, that really was my dream. Um, and I, I was planning to go back to school for physical therapy um, to kind of expand and just help, you know, more people. Um, 
have more consistent income really too. <laughs> um, but then, so in between all of that, I just, I couldn't handle studying for school and um, really putting in the time that I needed to. So that kind of went on the back, on the back burner. Okay. So you said roughly around senior year is when you started getting sick. That was kind of like when your symptoms began? Yeah, that was in uh, 2016. Yeah. Okay. The summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. And what did that, like, how did that look for you when it first started? Um, so I was in the National Guard, Army National Guard. I had joined when I was 18. So that was in about 2013. Uh, so in June of 2016, we were doing our annual training. It's two weeks where you're, you can be really anywhere, but I was in Virginia and we were doing, um, we were doing training in Virginia. We were camping out and, we didn't have access to like showers and bathrooms and that kind of stuff. We were just like sleeping in the woods. So for females, you got to go back to like the barracks to shower um, and then come back out into the field every three days. Um, and that was really just like for hygiene purposes, especially for the females. Um, so during this time, I mean, I, I guess I just really wasn't used to not showering. And, um, you know, not to be TMI here, but I was on my cycle. So every three days showering was not really going to cut it. So anyway, I had to use the porta potty and porta potties. And from just, I, I don't know, I developed a UTI. It was the first one I've ever had, the only one I've ever had. But that was when my symptoms started. I got a UTI at training. And for two or three years after that, I had severe UTI-like symptoms. I thought they were UTIs, um, but turns out it was actually interstitial cystitis. So I don't know what triggered it in June of 2016 to start, but that is when it all started. So do you remember being bitten by a tick or having a, like, do you have any memory of that at all? No, so. No. Um, I, and to be honest, I don't think that I got this from a tick. Um, I'm fairly positive I got it from mosquitoes. I get tagged up by mosquitoes. I mean, I could have, during the summer, I could have anywhere to 20 to 30 at once. Um, now I'm a lot more careful to make sure I don't get any, but I wasn't really, you know, concerned with mosquito bites then. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure it's from that. And as far as skin rashes, um, I don't remember any before then, but I do remember not like maybe a year or so afterwards, I developed a really extensive rash on my inner arm. Um, it was just like a thick, itchy rash. And every now and then it'll, it'll re still reappear. And I really I have no idea what that's from. It could be from, it could be from a tick bite or something from Lyme disease, but I'm not sure. And no one's ever really been concerned about it to, to, you know, do anything about the rash specifically. Hey, Brie, can I jump in? I want to ask you a question about the interstitial cystitis, right? Because that's something that's very common. And I frankly, I didn't know what it was until we started Tick Boot Camp. And many, many, many guests on this podcast have said that they suffer from it. So can you give us a little more detail about what that symptom is? Because for me, I had it as well. And it was a very early symptom like you. And mm -hmm. we get it and we don't think tick-borne illnesses. We don't think a mosquito bite. We don't think, you know, some sort of vector-borne illness. So if you could just give us some detail what those symptoms were 
So our listeners can be on the lookout for a reinfection or just to share this information with family and friends about an early sign or symptom of Lyme disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's weird because you you if if you have interstitial cystitis, it almost seems like you have a UTI, urinary tract infection, because they are very they have very similar symptoms and the missing part between the two is that there's no active infection. Um, so the symptoms could, I mean, could be a huge range of things, but pain when you're peeing, um, like a, a burning pain when you pee, a pressure in your bladder, um, even if you're not peeing, feeling to like this burning sensation in your bladder, um, it could be pain with sex. You could have pelvic pain. Um, it could even go as far as including constipation. It could be pelvic floor dysfunction. You could have bladder spasms. Um, the, the symptoms I was experiencing were um, severe burning when I was peeing and the burning wouldn't stop when I was done peeing. It would just, it was like glass shard, you know, piece of glass in my bladder is literally what it felt like. And anything that touched it, even if there was like a drop of urine, my bladder would be on fire. Um, so, you, you know, I would end up sitting there trying to strain to just get all of the urine out, which causes zone issues. Um, but I would have like really bad bladder spasming, which I mean, there, I don't know how to describe it other than just like really intense cramping of your bladder. Um, frequency with urinating, urgency with urinating. I mean, I even had like incontinence, like just because my um, pelvic floor, which I later learned like years later, my pelvic floor was actually so tight that it would spasm. So that was where the spasming was coming from. And then on top of like incontinence issues, I would have the complete opposite where it would be retention. Like I couldn't fully um, evacuate. It was like, I was just I don't know. It was just a whole, it was a whole mix of things. And I didn't get that diagnosis until the end of 2017, which would have been about a year and a half, two years after the onset of the symptoms. Thank you for explaining it so well. I think that probably helps a lot of people. Um, sometimes a diagnosis sounds really big, but you explained it in a way that I think a lot of people can actually visualize what those feelings are. And I'm sorry, that, that sounds, it's not something I experienced, but it sounds incredibly painful. Yeah, um, it can be painful, but yeah. now I don't really have any pain with that. I know what to look out for. I know what to avoid. Um, and when I have, you know, I feel like something's coming on, I can, you know, there's things that I can take to kind of get myself out of the woods with that. Okay. Do you want to elaborate really quickly a little bit on what that is? Because I think just kind of tag teaming off of Matt asking you to explain it. I think some people might be really interested in that too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if I, so first of all, what to avoid, it's going to be slightly different for everybody. What exacerbates their symptoms. And unfortunately with that, you're just going to have to like kind of pick up on a trend and then avoid it afterwards. But for me personally, especially like when it was very acute in the beginning, anything acidic. So like juices, teas, coffee, weirdly enough for me, I could do like a latte with like milk in it and I'd be okay. But if I just drank straight coffee, that would flare me up. Um, alcohol for sure. How to avoid alcohol. 
Um, if I drank too, if I was dehydrated, that was an issue. Um, and there were some just random foods that like triggered me that I think were just like raspberries. I don't know why, but for sure with the drinks, anything acidic, you really want to avoid like tomato juice as well, stuff like that. Um, and I do think that varies a, a bunch among people. Like with one of my friends, she's interstitial cystitis too. And we have no foods in common that we need to avoid. So it really is just personalized there. But if I do start to feel symptoms coming on, like I notice that it's just, it's just, I'm starting to get this like burning pain in my bladder or something. Um, I really hate to use medication, but in this case, Azo, um, I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, A-Z-O, um, for UTIs is godsend. It literally, it just numbs your bladder. I mean, it's not something that you should be taking on a daily basis, but if you have this acute flare up taking, you know, several days of this bladder numbing medication works wonders. And if you eliminate whatever it was that was triggering the flare up and you drink plenty of water, um, that really helps kind of get you to back to your baseline again. That's interesting. Thank you for sharing. I, yeah, absolutely. I, I just learned a lot. So that was, I think, really helpful for sure. So let's go back to your annual um, National Guard. You said every year you guys had to do this like training. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, were the symptoms you were having, was that interfering with training at that point or not yet? During the two weeks, I just remember having like typical UTI symptoms. Um, uh, but I was able to like, just kind of keep it to myself. You know what I mean? I wasn't, I didn't have to, I didn't bring it up to them. Um, and it didn't really disturb what I was doing. Um, so yeah, I was able to just get through those two weeks. Okay. So what came, like, were you still in school after that? What came next for you? So 2016, I graduated with my first degree in December of 2016. So after December of 2016 until beginning of 2018, I think I was not in school and I was just doing personal training. Um, but as the, that time went on more and more symptoms started to accumulate so from June of 2016 until the beginning of 20 or end of 2017, rather, I was really just dealing with this interstitial cystitis and just doctor hopping. Um, I saw, oh God, I don't even know how many uh, ur- urologists I saw, but um, I had a multitude of episodes of what I thought were UTIs. I would have like the severe burning to the point where I just, I need to go to the emergency room now. And I think I went probably three or four times and it was the same thing. Every time they would take a urine sample, send me home with antibiotics. I take the antibiotics. I'd feel a little bit better. And a few weeks later, the same thing would happen. Um, You never had an infection, right? They never cultured an infection from your urine, which to me is, is a red flag, right? Oh, absolutely. And I wish that I knew what I know now, but uh, yeah. So when I finally found a competent urologist who I, I don't remember, she must've been in the same like system as where I was getting these um, urinalysis done, but 
I had this, you know, appointment with her and we did um, a urodynamic test. Basically, they like put a catheter in, they fill up my bladder with water, more or less. Um, they have you try and retain the water for as long as you can. And then you're supposed to urinate. They count how long and it takes. And basically they're trying to figure out if you have issues with um, incontinence and retention, blah, blah, blah. So while I was at that appointment, um, they were able to tell me that I never had any UTIs except that first one back in June at my annual training. That was the only time I ever had a UTI. And that all of the um, episodes afterwards had no active infection. They never grew anything. And, you know, of course I was angry. Like, why was I just being handed out antibiotics like candy? Um, but I mean, there's nothing I could do. So at that appointment, after this urodynamic test, um, going through previous um, cultures, that was when I was diagnosed with interstitial cystitis and told I never had any UTIs besides that first one. Um, so during that whole time is really, I really like opened up to the world of um, functional medicine and starting to do my own research, figure out what exactly is going on. Yeah. All right. So at this point, You've seen a lot of doctors, uh, more specifically to the UTIs that weren't actually UTIs. Um, what other symptoms did you have? What other doctors did you see? Like, what's your, I always call it a journey to a diagnosis, because for most people it is. Like, you see a multitude of doctors of different disciplines before you finally get that one person who kind of puts their thumb on it. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely was a journey for sure. Um, so not too long after I got that diagnosis of, um, IC interstitial cystitis, I, and I was still working out during this. So, and, and the, the bladder pain I was having was like sort of inhibiting my workouts because if I would exert myself too much, I would get that bladder pain again. But for the most part, I was still looked perfectly normal functioning normal, working out like normal, right? In March of 2018, I suddenly experienced this extremely horrible pain in my right hip. And um, not too long after that, I started having really severe lower back pain. So it-, it took, for, for context, how long was this from the time you first got your quote unquote UTI? So my initial symptoms had started in June of 2016. Um, at the end of 2017, I was diagnosed with the interstitial cystitis. And now a few months later, March of 2018, I started experiencing this really bad right hip pain. Just kind of happened out of nowhere, um, probably related to an exercise I did. Um, but there was no like exact moment of, wow, I this is what I did. And this is the pain I'm having. So it had gone to the point where I couldn't sit normally. I had to have my right leg dangling off of the chair. I couldn't stand for more than like five or 10 minutes. I couldn't sit for more than five or 10 minutes. There was really just no relief from this pain. Um, at this time I, I happened to be shadowing physical therapists. Um, because I wanted to go to school for physical therapy. So you needed to get some shadowing hours and, these physical therapists 
specialize in women's health. So, you know, as I'm shadowing them, we're bonding, I'm explaining to them what's been going on over the last couple of years and um, telling them about my hip pain, the IC, and now this low back pain that's starting, which I've never had low back pain in my life at this point. And they're telling me it's, it sounds like you have hypertonic pelvic floor. And so I had never heard of that before, but basically it's your, your pelvic floor, which is supporting all of like your reproductive organs, including your bladder. Um, my pelvic floor had just gotten so tight, um, to the point where it was pulling on ligaments and pelvic floor, um, issues can only be diagnosed internally. So they had to do an internal vaginal exam, but they're physical therapists. So it's very interesting. And there's only, you know, a few here and there that are specialized in pelvic floor physical therapy, but basically, you know, they're inside of me and they're palpating on different ligaments and tendons and muscles and they could actually press on this one ligament and completely recreate the pain that I was having in my hip. So it was, it was amazing to, to have this sort of perspective from a physical therapist. They recommended that I see an orthopedic surgeon. So this is probably in the summertime of 2018 now. And I was working with, with these physical therapists, like not only am I shadowing them, but I am in their patient now. And I'm seeing an orthopedic surgeon. And, you know, the physical therapists are saying, hey, I think this is an orthopedic issue. Orthopedic surgeons tell me, hey, I think this is a physical therapy issue, like pelvic floor issue. And eventually the orthopedic surgeon signs off and says, I can't help you. Sorry. Um, so now I'm back to the physical therapist. And um, eventually... I get the diagnosis after million scans and doctors that I have a labral tear. So I, I somehow tore the labrum in my right hip, which I'm told takes an extraordinary amount of force in the hip to have that occur. And like I said, I don't know what would have caused that to happen. All I can think of at this point is that Lyme disease is just attacking the collagen so, um, and I opted not to have surgery on my hip, um, surgery for a torn labrum in the hip is a 50% success rate. So I just, it wasn't worth it to me knowing what I know with physical therapy. Um, I mean, um, personal training and with the help of the physical therapists, I did my own rehab. And after about two years, um, so later into 2020 is when I started to have, um, I would say about 90%, 80% recovery of my normal function of my right leg. Hey, Brie, can I ask a question about this? And I may be off base and I apologize. And this is, I'm going to use the man card here for this question, right? But we have so many people on this podcast and they, many of them tell us offline, some of them share on, on the podcast that Lyme disease really has an impact on the female health, right? More specific than the male health. And and myself as, as a male, I can't relate to some of these things. You mentioned painful sex. You, met, you mentioned a lot of these pelvic floor disorders. And we've had people get full hysterectomies and all kinds of, you know, things removed and surgeries and then tell us, hey, it didn't even make me feel much better. And I was promised mm -hmm. I'd have, you know, no symptoms left. So am I on track? Are, are some of your symptoms, you know, 
correlated to these other female health issues that we hear in this podcast? And if so, what are your views on them? Because I obviously know nothing about this kind of stuff. And I'm curious to see what you can share with our listeners about, you know, what your views are on female health when it comes to Lyme disease. And if you think it's worthwhile to have these surgeries that are common with endometriosis, pelvic floor disorder, and things like that, that many in the Lyme community experience. Um, in my opinion, I don't think it's worth having these surgeries. Surgery itself is very hard on the body. You know, it's not like it's this simple thing with a simple, you know, simple surgery with a simple recovery. Um, if you're sick enough to have a surgery, you probably are going to be sick enough where you have an issue recovering from the surgery. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess being now being an ICU nurse and I, seeing these surgeries that some of my patients go through, I just, I could, I am very reluctant to get any surgery now. And, and, you know, also knowing that is just, you know, by the time you're needing a surgery, that's the surgery is just going to be fixing a symptom or like a result of the infection. You're not actually fixing the infection. So, you know, for example, with the hysterectomy, uh, you know, say you have like, fibrous tumors or something growing like that in the uterus. And so you get this hysterectomy. Well, you didn't treat anything. And I know that those types of situations can be reversible um, if they're due to an infection and you treat the infection. Um, but just in my opinion, yeah, getting, getting any type of surgery for me really is not an option just because I know the recovery time could be just as bad if not worse than the issue I'm dealing with. Um, but I do take a pretty holistic, you know, view to as much as possible. Um, I try and stay away from conventional medicine. Ironic that I'm working in the hospital, but I try and stay away from that stuff as much as I can, just because the side effects of things are just, you know, even the medicine you have to take to get the surgery causes so many issues that for me personally, it's not worth it. And, and that was my thought process when I was, you know, being told that, you know, either get the surgery or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have you under my care anymore. So yeah, <laughs> I'd rather see a physical therapist and a chiropractor and, and those kind of modalities um, than surgery. Yeah, you're, it was funny as you were talking about it and you said it's ironic. I'm an ICU nurse and I kind of laughed with you because I didn't make sense though. You, you see, you see the struggles people come into those situations with. And I mean, I'm sure it makes you such an empathetic nurse mm -hmm. because of your own struggles too. Um, but yeah, you are definitely experiencing it from both sides of both sides of the coin there. So in terms of where, where we've left off, you've seen lots of urologists, you've been back and forth with your PTs who specialize in pelvic floor, ortho, what came next? So <clears throat> let me see, I wrote a little note here for myself, because <laughs> there's just so much to remember. Um, okay, so I had gone through, I think, two or three different physical therapists who specialize in pelvic floor. Because even though I had gotten the diagnosis of the hypertonic pelvic floor, I was having a lot of difficulty with 
getting symptom relief. So, I mean, I really did make a lot of progress with my physical therapist and just the pain I was having with the interstitial cystitis, but not enough to kind of turn the corner and be symptom free. So I was doing a lot of physical therapist hopping as well. Um, and, and during that time I had, I think I already mentioned this started developing really bad lower back pain. So we were now in the trouble of, okay, I'm getting relief from like my pelvic floor, but for some reason my lower back's flaring up and it was just a constant, you know, battle between the two at the end of 2018, um, is when things just really took a turn. Um, now, interestingly enough, before things went downhill, I had mentioned I really liked going to music festivals and raves and concerts. And so um, my fiance, we've been together since this all started. I met him in 2015 when I was perfectly healthy. We met at a rave. And um, in 2016, we started dating. And so he's been with me through this entire journey. So we were still going to concerts and stuff with our friends. So at the end of the summer, no, September, September, we went to a concert. Um, and October of 2018 is when everything just turned terrible. So I, I woke up one day um, in October with a lymph node that was literally like just out to here, completely swollen, hurt to turn my head, hurt to touch it, hurt to swallow. It was just horrible. Um, severe muscle pain and tightness, especially my neck, which I still deal with lower back pain. Um, and this is just kind of like progressing through the month of October muscle weakness. Um, we had stairs up to our apartment. I, I couldn't even like walk up the stairs, let alone down the stairs, terrible hand tremors. I distinctly remember feeling like ants were crawling all over me, especially at night. I could not get that, that to stop. Um, extreme fatigue, which I still deal with, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you guys understand this and most people listening probably do, but that fatigue where it's like your full, full body, just like death. Like you just need to lay down, not talk to anybody, not do anything. Um, a lot of like neuro symptoms, like mixing up words, forgetting words, mispronouncing words that still happens, unfortunately. Um, constipation. So I was dealing with that prior to this flare up. Um, actually in 2015, before I even had my annual training in 2016, where my first symptoms started in 2015, I had gotten a colonoscopy, um, for constipation. I was just, they were, they were concerned. I had like a small bowel obstruction because I was just so constipated. Well, that got way worse in 2018. Um, started dealing with digestive issues, like bloating. I felt like I could eat nothing without bloating or my um, interstitial cystitis flaring up or having like just stomach pains and or, or having hives and itchiness. Um, so it was at that time when I decided, okay, maybe I should stop pursuing physical therapy. Um, stop like taking the classes I need to get into the, you know, program, stop shadowing. Um, that's when I, that's when I stopped um, doing personal training. Everything just kind of came to like a cease at the end of 2018. Um, and like during this time, as I'm like getting sicker and sicker, I'm on, this is when I had Facebook still, I was joining 
Facebook groups, especially ones about interstitial cystitis. That was the only one, only diagnosis I had at the time. And I mean, these Facebook groups were really like God sent to me. I don't think I would have made any progress as far as like figuring out I had Lyme disease if it wasn't for these groups, but they were the ones who were kind of putting the seed in like, Hey, usually with interstitial cystitis, there's an infection. And so, um, I had gone to my, uh, primary care doctor and I remember, you know, sitting down with him being like, listen, something is going on and I need to be tested for different bacterial and viral infections. I mean, and and thankfully this doctor was very open-minded, didn't know much of anything about Lyme disease, but he was willing to run a whole slew of tests. So we ran a bunch of tests and, um, Lyme came back as equivocal. So he's like, oh, you don't have Lyme disease. But from these Facebook groups, I knew that equivocal could still mean positive results. So that is now at the end of 2018. Wait, where are you living? Are you, are you, where are you living at this point? What state are you in now? I, so from 2016 is when I moved to Philadelphia. So I'm still in Philadelphia at this point. So you're in Philly where, where Lyme is very prevalent and doctors should know better. I mean, granted, doctors should know better everywhere, I feel like, but it's not like you're in some rural area where it's not as prevalent, right? So hearing right. this is pretty surprising. You're doing the research, you're in these groups, Lyme is coming to mind in these groups that you, these ICS groups that you're in. You're mm-hmm. telling your doctor, comes back equivocal and it's like, oh, can't be Lyme, you're equivocal. But you knew better, right? But it's, it's just frustrating that a doctor dismissed Lyme because of an equivocal test, knowing how bad these tests are. So even more so that you're in Pennsylvania. So I'm sorry, I just had to ask that question. No. Yeah. That was very frustrating to me too. I mean, I had been getting kind of dismissed from the start. I mean, the first urologist I went to back in 2016 said that this isn't an issue with your bladder. You're just drinking too much water. And that has stuck in my head ever since then. Cause I'm just like, how could you ever say that to a patient who's suffering with so much pain? Oh, this is because you drink too much water. No, actually that's the only way I get relief is by drinking a lot of water. Um, but anyway, fast forward to this, uh, primary care doctor who, yeah, ran all these tests and he says it's equivocal. Not, I mean, there wasn't much more I expected him to do besides just letting me, listening to me and running these tests. So I was thankful for that. From there, I moved on to searching for a Lyme specialist. And, um, now this is beginning of 2019. I found a specialist who was two hours away from me and she um, and my parents also at this time were not very emotionally supportive financially. They were, thank God they were helping me pay for tests and for supplements and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But it was never because they fully believed that I was really sick and, you know, needed help. Um, So, are you comfortable expanding upon that a little bit? Do you mean that they were financially funding you to get the testing done, but they doubted whether or not you were truly physically sick? Is that what you mean? Yes. So yeah, exactly. So I, you know, really only my fiance, Chris, really only he was the one to see me really ill like this. Like when I was having those, you know, the, the, the flare ups with IC, he was the one that was with me. And, you know, I had moved out 
in 20, you know, I moved out when I went to college in like 2012 or whatever. So I haven't been living with my parents for a long while at this point. Um, and now, you know, I'm an hour away from them in Philly. So there wasn't really like, oh, I'm feeling sick. Can you come help or anything like that? It was just always Chris. So when I was having like these neurosymptoms, the fatigue and, you know, all of that, really just him seeing it. So now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, something's definitely going on. And our regular doctors are not, whether they have the capability or not to help me with it, they really just don't believe that that chronic Lyme is a thing. So I need a specialist. So when I found this specialist, now, like I said, my parents were willing, were able to help me financially. Um, So I would have never been able to get any of this treatment without their help. It was just way too much money. Um, But my dad didn't want me to start any treatment until I had tests that said positive, 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 positive. So, um, and, and you guys know that a lot of these specialists will treat based off of your clinical presentation, off of your symptoms. Uh, so anyway, we ordered a whole slew of tests again. Uh, these ones were through Geneva, I think, or something like that. Igenics, something, something. Igenics. Igenics, yeah. Yeah, and, and outsour- you know, outsourced lab. Um, and so we tested for Bartonella and Babesia and EBV and Lyme disease and mycoplasma, anaplasma, all of those infections. And again, Lyme came back equivocal. Bartonella came back positive, EBV positive, um, mycoplasma, I think that's how you say it, positive. Um, Babesia was negative, I think. And so I was like, okay, look, I got, you know, I got these uh, positive tests here. And so then my dad was like, okay, you know, he he didn't, I guess he was worried that the doctor was going to like try and scam us or something. I don't know. But we we started treatment from there. Um, from are you, are you comfortable sharing the name of your Lyme specialist that you visited? Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh, she she's what inspired me to go into nursing. Um, Rita Rhodes, Christiana, Pennsylvania, and um, she has yeah she's a, a practice in uh, Amish Amish country Amish land, and uh, it's just her. She has a midwife practice as well. And so she's really like a, a good focal point um, for as, as far as like a health provider for people out there. But she was really great. Um, she was the reason I got through that like really acute, you know, phase. Of, well, I wouldn't say acute because it's probably chronic at this point. But you know what I mean? Where my symptoms were really horrible. She's the one who got me through all of that. Um and I, I think another reason why my my dad more so was, you know, reluctant to believe that I was sick as I was, was because I still was trying my best to work out and, you know, do everything that I could as I normally was. It really wasn't until October when I really was just like out, was just done with everything, like bed bound almost. Um, and that's, sorry, October 2019 still? This is October of 2018 when I really like everything just kind of hit me at once. Uh, January, uh, January of 2019 is when I started working with um, Rita Rhodes. The, she's a nurse practitioner. And then, so how did, you know, you said you had some positive tests, your Lyme test is still equivocal. 
Uh, what was the first step kind of in, was it her that you started treatment with? Like what, what was the next step with, with that? Yeah. So we started, um, started me on antibiotics, bunch of supplements and, um, diet change. So I remember, well, I remember that I had a lot of reactions to the antibiotics. It took a while for us to find a good combination. I like had rashes that would form, um, from a lot of, from, I think two or three different ones. I know I reacted to doxycycline. Um, but I don't ultimately remember what combination of antibiotics worked for me. And I did that for about six months, six months with the antibiotics, the supplements, um, and I did whole 30. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but basically it's 30 days of whole foods and like no trying to mimic like, you know, your desserts or anything like that. Like you're supposed to be eating these clean meals. So that right there eliminated dairy. I think it removes gluten too, but I was, so during those 30 days, I'm like, dang, I'm eating as, this is the best I've ever eaten. And I was still having severe digestive issues. Um, so I later learned that not only was I sensitive to dairy, um, I had reintroduced gluten. I didn't realize the importance of eliminating gluten until 2020, but I learned I was really sensitive to nightshades. So those would include things like eggplant, um, uh, potatoes, uh, tomatoes, peppers, And then when I eliminated those, that's when I really had a huge decrease in my bloating and issues with digestion like that. Um, But yeah, so for about six months, we did, we did the antibiotics. Um, I would go there, go back to her every four to six weeks and we would just do like basic lab work, um, kind of like bring in on the supplements and change what needed to be changed. We did do a bunch of other tests. Like we did a gut microbiome test and that had shown that basically my microbiome was like completely wiped out. Like even my, the microvilli, I think that's how you say it. The little villi in your stomach, mine were just like, (laughs) mine were just like wiped out. They were just like gone. Um, Not sure what that was from, I guess maybe from just constant food sensitivity reactions but um, now I only stuck with her for about six months because I, I, we literally could not afford the treatment anymore. I think we had spent maybe close to ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in those six months. And um, yeah, it was just, that was, I mean, we really couldn't do much after that. And I couldn't expect my parents to keep putting out the money. And so um, treatment halted about halfway through March, I mean, halfway through, um, 2019. Okay. So it kind of sounds like basically for six months, you did various combinations of antibiotics, kind of trying to find the right one that worked for you. Mm-hmm. Of course, having side effects from those antibiotics. Um, but you did find a lot of positive changes and kind of empowered yourself even by learning what certain foods were doing to your body. And then at that point you stopped seeing her. So what did you, what, what was your path next after that? So this is about the summer of 2019 now. And I was doing, I would say uh, maybe like 60% better at this point, but I, I, I noticed like a lot of improvement because 
I mean, going from maybe like 20% to 60, you do notice a lot of improvement. But um, I do know that after like a couple of months, I started to have my symptoms creep back in. And actually, so in August, end of August is when we, of 2019 is when we moved to Charleston. And I distinctly remember after being here for about two months, I went to the beach in the early morning. Um, I had dropped Chris off at work, went to the beach. I was there at like six o'clock in the morning and I got tagged up by mosquitoes. I mean, just covered in mosquitoes. And not too long after that, maybe a day or two, I started getting that lymph node um, pain in my, behind my ear, started getting muscle aches and just basically flared back up from these mosquito bites. Um, And that is when I was like, okay, I guess I need to start treatment again. (laughs) So um, I had already got accepted into a nursing program back up north. So I, I lived in Charleston for like three or four months. And then I went back up to Pennsylvania, the beginning of 2020 for nursing school. And that is when I found another practitioner who did accept insurance, but who was open to Lyme disease and, you know, functional medicine um, type of treatments. So that's when I started seeing her. Um, and I, I don't remember the name of that practice. She wasn't as effective in um, my healing as a previous practitioner, mainly because I was limited on how much money I could spend. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember, I, I, did, I, I didn't, my parents were still very reluctant to, to help me with as much because they had, I guess in their eyes, I hadn't made an improvement. I'm not really sure. And in addition to that, they were helping me pay for school. So we just kind of re-entered into the struggle with finances. And so I was more in like using her to just test my like lab results, you know, get lab results and give supplement suggestions. But I was only buying what I could afford and not doing like a full treatment plan with her. Um, <clears throat> so like I said, this is like through 2020. And this is when I really started to figure out things that like, were sustainable for me. And that made me feel good. That didn't break the bank. And one of those things that I learned was the sauna and the sauna has been just miraculous for me. I still, (laughs) I'm still living in the sauna. Um, but yeah, the heat has been really huge for me and same with, um, these supplements that I take probiotics, magnesium, vitamin C, vitamin D, turmeric and Irish sea moss. Those have been the big ones for me. Um, I've since added in a couple more supplements. Um, I do take for like bowel regularity. I have a gallbladder formula that basically helps your gallbladder create more bile. Um, And I take Senna, um, which is like a stool softener laxative. I know it's not the best for you, but it's really the only way I can keep myself regular. And I do the Senna like maybe twice a week, but the Irish sea moss, and the magnesium and the gallbladder formula. Um, that's by Dr. Berg. I, anybody dealing with constipation got, I highly recommend it. As soon as I started adding that in, I'm, I'm regular every day. It's really weird. Um, but yeah, so the supplements and the sauna have been really huge for me. Yeah. It sounds like those are 
you kind of lit up a little bit when you talk about them. So I feel like you have some passion about them. That's awesome. That's good. I mean, sauna is something a lot of people are doing more and more of. Um, I know I found it actually exacerbated how I felt the heat like that. I actually felt worse with it. So I didn't, I didn't really stick it out too much and continue with it, but I'm so happy that you you shared that because it's, it is one of those more accessible tools, right? Yeah, so do you sure. use one of those portable ones that I've seen a lot of people on social media using too? Yeah. So when I was home for nursing school, yeah, in 2020, I did buy one of the portable ones because I couldn't find a gym that had a sauna. Um, and also it was just really like low on time school studying. And then I had the sauna at home that I would use. Um, but then it just stopped working one day and then COVID happened and I moved back, moved out of the apartment I was in to be close to school. And I moved back in with my parents, my mom, um, there was a gym. She was, was going to that stayed open that had a sauna. So I was able to use that sauna. And then I moved back to Charleston at the beginning of 2021. And there are gyms around here that have saunas. So I have been able to use like an actual sauna since middle of 2020. Um, but I mean, either way, just the act of sweating is so therapeutic for me, like for my mental health, but also for my body too. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, so basically now you're back in school, a pandemic happens. You've taken your treatment back into your own hands a little bit. And then, so is there, is there kind of like any part that I'm missing so far with these questions, like in your journey, like, is there anything you want to touch back on before I kind of? Yeah. Um, I would say probably at this point being like the middle of 2020, like through 2020, I would say I'm like, mm, I don't know, maybe still around like 60 to 70% better. Um, they're like the fatigue and these are symptoms I'm still dealing with. Like the fatigue is still pretty extreme. I still have like a lot of brain fog and like word switching and that kind of stuff. I still have chronic pain um, and the muscle tightness, like those kind of haven't gotten better. Uh, I was able to like return to, you know, working out and doing more and more like similar exercises to what I've been doing previously. Uh, but unfortunately last year in August, when I was working out, I, I, I don't know, I must've had my head in a weird position. It was an exercise I had done. I mean, thousands of times. Um, it's a squat thruster where you, you squat down and on your way up, you push your weights overhead. Like you're doing a shoulder press. I heard pops and, before I knew it, um, I was in extreme pain. It turns out I herniated two discs in my thoracic spine and one in my cervical spine. So I'm like, you know, for God's sakes, how did this happen? It's not like I'd never worked out before and suddenly, you know, I'm picking up weights over my head. So I, I've been recovering from that since August of last year. And when I went to go to my chiropractor here, um, I decided it was finally time to start, you know, investing in a chiropractor. We did x-rays of my neck and she had told me that I was in stage three disc degenerative disease 
if you want to call it a disease. Um, and I just was like astonished. I only thing I can think of that would be causing this is just the bacteria just, you know, attacking my collagen and, you know, ligaments and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, even with all of these changes I have made and the supplements and the sauna and, you know, trying to get a better circadian rhythm going and, you know, working on my bowel regularity and eliminating, you know, now I've been gluten-free for two years, um, or a year rather, you know, I still have these random, like, I still have these episodes of severe injuries. So I don't know. I'm, it's hard to not get sucked into a negative mindset about never being able to go back to what you were doing before. But it's funny because Sarah Sarah and I were talking about this offline before we started the podcast that sometimes it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking about the things we can't do, but not realizing the things we're able to do that we couldn't do before. Right. So what I'm hearing as I'm listening to you and Sarah talk here is you had a radical transformation. I mean, you were, you got to the point where you were neurologically impaired, you were physically impaired, you could barely function. And thanks to your doctor in Pennsylvania and, you know, it sounds like a cocktail of antibiotics and, and supplements, you you made huge gains. Then you had some setbacks, you found some other tools to help, and your life today is significantly better than it was when you were at your worst, but you're still working on addressing some lingering symptoms that are left, right? I mean, so just the fact that you are working as a nurse, which is a very physical job, a very stressful job, right? You are engaged, you said, so you've been able to maintain your relationship despite being sick. These are all really powerful things that you've been able to do despite being sick over the last couple of years, right? So I don't want to lose sight of all the, the progress you've made and all the, the, the cool things you've been able to achieve despite being sick. But I do want to focus on the relationship piece of it too, because so many people in the Lyme community either believe that they aren't deserving of love or that that they're just not worthy of love, right? I guess is, is the best way to describe it. So how did you manage to keep your relationship with your boyfriend and now fiance while being so sick and have success? We know it's never perfect. And obviously there's ups and downs in any relationship, but give us some guidance and advice and tips for our listeners who are feeling better or and looking to re-enter the, the dating space or people that are thinking, hey, I'm really sick. Nobody's ever going to love me. I'm just going to be single and lonely the rest of my life because that's a lot of fe- a lot of us have those feelings. And don't want to publicly share those feelings that that are in this community. Yeah, um, I don't know. I I've thought a lot about how lucky I am that he has stayed by my side through all of this, especially because there's sort of like been a before and an after. Like before I was sick, you know, we were doing Spartan races together. We're going to raves and dancing, and you know you know, living how a typical 21 and 22 year old would, um, to after, you know, doing, you know, cooking for me and bringing me water and help me with my supplements and helping me remember if I took my supplements and correcting me when I mix up words. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I remind myself very often how lucky I am that he has stuck with me through all of that. And I, I, the best advice I can give is, is that, you know, if, if you have someone who is using your own illness against you, then no matter how loved you want to be, then that it doesn't matter because you don't deserve to be put down 
regardless of what the reason is, you don't, it's not worth staying with someone just to feel like you are being loved. Um, you deserve somebody who is going to cherish you no matter how healthy or how ill you are. And just reminding yourself that the person you need to focus on is yourself. You can't worry about, even if you want so badly to have a relationship, you can't focus on other people and satisfying other people when you need to be focusing on yourself. It takes a lot of energy away from your healing when you're trying to focus on being good enough for someone else. Um, and really during like this, I think that when you're sick, it, you you should try your best not to worry about finding somebody for yourself. Um, like I said, in my opinion, it's just very energy draining to try and to try and, you know, form a, a really good relationship. I know it's important to, but um, it, it's, it just takes a lot out of your own healing when you're trying to constantly be a certain person for someone else. Um, I'm also of the belief that relationships will form um, when they're meant to be and that you don't need to really seek out a relationship. It will, if it's meant to be, it'll be. And like, even just being on like, these Facebook groups and these um, Lyme disease groups or whatever, you know, groups you're a part of, um, even just doing those kind of groups are a way to meet people and, and have interactions. So um, it doesn't have to be something like going out to the bar to meet somebody. It could be, you know, just forming a relationship and having a support system online. Yeah. I just want to say that I think you're being very humble and you have in this whole interview because you are, a huge portion of the reason why you are still together and flourishing with your now fiance, right? So obviously mm -hmm. your fiance is an amazing man, right? Clearly, but you are a big part of that too, because the way you persevere despite being sick, right? The way you continue to communicate with your partner, the way you continue to show him love while being sick is the reason you're still together and flourishing. So it, it takes two, right? And I just want to, I want to recognize that you are a big part of the success of this relationship as well. So uh, please don't lose sight of that, right? Thank you for that advice. And and I'm asking because also, you know, Sarah, you know, you have a, a successful partner and relationship as well. So if you have anything you want to chime in here, because this has been brought up a lot over the past few weeks in, in our community, especially in, in DMs and private chats, Rich and I have had with, with community members, that there are people, you know, now, because, you, know, you know, Brie, you talked about when you're really sick, try not to focus too much on on finding somebody and falling in love. But now there are people who are transitioning back into health and having all these insecurities because of being so sick and wanting to get confidence that they can be loved and are having a really hard time transitioning back into the dating world and the romance world. So Sarah, do you have any, any comments or thoughts on that as well? Because this is a really important topic, I think, that's not talked about enough. And both of you are really good examples of two people who have been sick with Lyme and have had successful relationships despite your illness. Yeah, um, I've had a same lots of private conversations in my inbox, people asking, these kind of questions too. Um, Steven and I have been together. This is our 20th year actually coming up this month. So um, he, he, he's known me before throughout and then now. Um, and I mean, I would, I can't, can't tell you how many times we'd be sitting there and this was like right before my diagnosis. This is the point where he's literally brushing my teeth, toileting me, carrying me like from the couch to the bed. And I, you know, it was, it, 
TV shows you watch and like the storyline, you know, someone gets sick and I'm like, illness like breaks people. It breaks relationships. And he's like, it's not going to break us. And I was like, how do you know that? Cause in my head, I was like, you didn't sign up for this. Like, I mean, I obviously didn't either, but I'm the one that doesn't have a choice. He, he technically he does. I mean, he chose me. He chose his life. Um, he chose to stick it out with me, but I think a big part of it was going through all the paces together. He was always really involved. He came to all of the appointments. He was as educated as he possibly could have been in everything that I was going through. And he wasn't just my husband and my best friend through it. He was literally like my partner. Like he is the person that gave me the hope on the days I didn't have it anymore on the days I wanted to give up. Like he wouldn't let me like when I didn't have it, he had it for me. And I think in terms of advice, I mean, I mean, I grew into an adult with him. I've been dating him since I, I'm married to him, but I dated him since I was 16. So um, I think just having really open communication and allowing each other to have bad days and not hold them against each other and picking each other up when it's hard, because I always personally felt like it must be harder to be him. I mean, I'm the one that's having all the pain. I'm the one that's physically going through the motions of all the pick lines and the central lines and the porticats, but he's watching and he can't really, he can't fix it. And I think that's more heartbreaking to be completely honest, at least from my perspective, um, advice. I don't be as open as you can. That's I think all I can really say. And people love you for you. It's not, they don't love you for how fast you can run. You know, like it's, it's just building that relationship together. Can I add something? Absolutely. Um, prior to getting sick with Lyme, but after Chris and I started dating, I had dealt with very extreme binge eating and body dysmorphia. Um, very, very debilitating mental health related symptoms I would get. And um, I mentioned that because what helped me get through those types of issues with, you know, loving myself and putting myself out there um, was the same, were the same things that helped me get through um, my issues of feeling like I'll never be able to have a social life again. I'll never be able to get back to working out. What really helped me was journaling, um, writing out how I'm feeling just writing, writing what was on my mind, writing how I was feeling, following journal prompts. I mean, just writing really, really was therapeutic for me. And that helped to heal, oddly enough, a lot of the insecurities I had. Um, and, you know, I think, I don't know if this happens for everyone, but I know for me for a while, all I could talk about were Lyme, was Lyme disease, where my symptoms were, how ill I was feeling, how bad I was feeling, how I couldn't do what I used to do. And, um, you know, if, if somebody wants advice, I guess advice would be to try and, um, you know, like you said, Matt, focus on the positives and really try and talk about the positives. And I'm not saying ignore that you're feeling sick and pretend that it doesn't exist and like lie about that. But, you know, trying to find the positives in your life and, 
using that as a way to strike up a conversation can be very helpful um, instead of living in this, you know, negativity. Um, so you know, I think it's brilliant. And one of the things that I love is, and we've been reminded of this by a few podcast guests now, and now you Brie is don't wait until you're in remission or symptom free to find things that bring you joy and live your life. Right. Because I found that's something that I struggled with for a while as well. You feel like in, unless you are your pre-illness state, you can't live your life and you cannot find things that bring you joy. And that's simply not true, right? There are plenty of things you can do while having limitations, have a happy and, and happy life, be productive, find people to share in that joy with and, and be happy, right? So I think it's a really important lesson that so many of us have to focus on. Instead of focusing on saying, hey, I can't go run a marathon right now. But I'm able to go for a walk and I'm able to go out and socialize and I'm able to go to work and I'm able to, or I'm able to have a, you know, a, t- a day today with less pain than yesterday. Those are all things that, that can bring us joy. And, and I think it's about perspective and how we approach this illness. And if we have grace on ourselves and our bodies, I think that's going to help us heal even quicker from that, that approach that we have in, in conjunction with any, whatever treatment we're using. So I think it's really important, Bree. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I do want to circle back, Bree, to your you know, where you were, I think we're, we're kind of back into almost, you know, end of 2021, you know, you're, you're doing better. Have you done anything since Bri? Is there anything else you've added into your regimen to help? Obviously the sauna is really awesome for you to help with a lot of your symptoms. It sounds like it helps with pain. It helps with just blood flow. It helps with just even your mood and your, your, you know, we'll call it depression, you know, symptoms that can be caused mm-hmm. by chronic illness. Anything else you're doing daily in addition to your supplements, sauna, et cetera, that you can share with our listeners to give them some tips and tricks that, that help you in your daily life? Yeah. Um, there's been a lot I'm trying to think. So I had mentioned, and I, I want to mention again, just because it's been so beneficial for me, Irish sea moss. That's something newer I've added in. Um, I kind of lumped it up in with the initial things I was doing, but it's actually something newer I've added. It has, um, I think, 91 of the 100 and something minerals that exist. So it's very mineral dense. Um, but that has been really soothing for my stomach. Um, that's been really helpful. Um, I have started, um, t- sorry, I'm trying to think. I actually got a SIBO test done because I was still having like some digestive issues. And um I was positive for methane dominant SIBO. So um, I am going to be starting a regimen for that. I'm going to do like a um, tinctures for that. But um, really the big things from, and I did try LDN too, low dose naltrexone. Unfortunately, um, I don't know if my current provider doesn't really know like the, that you don't have to really max out at the four milligrams but she kept getting me higher and higher to four milligrams and I started having reactions. And so I just stopped it all together. Um, but when I was on the lower doses, um, it was, I actually did notice a very big decrease in my chronic pain. Um, but I've since switched to just focusing on dry needling, dry needling for my neck is just astonishing how much relief I get. Same with my lower back. And actually, um, in relation to the herniation with my debt, my neck, I keep getting recurring shoulder dislocations. Um, so dry needling the muscles, um, there have been super helpful. Um, the chiropractor, if you can find one that does initial checks with an x-ray, just to make sure there's nothing like really that they can't adjust on you. 
Um, and that's covered by insurance. If you can find one like I did it, my gosh, I don't have any lower back pain anymore. Um, and I've been going to her for a year now and I'm just now starting to really notice some serious, um, improvements, but the chiropractor and a good physical therapist, you can dry needle have been really helpful for me. And really just, I, I guess this year has been about learning my limits. I'm, I'm done trying to, you know, if, if it's not worth it to me anymore to try and be friends with people who only care about drinking and only care about, you know, going out all the time. And um, if that's the only thing we can bond over, then it's not a good friendship for me. Um, if, if that's a better way to put it, um, really honoring like a proper sleep wake cycle, going to bed at, you know, 10 o'clock is a good time for me waking up at like eight o'clock and just really like honing in on those little things that, um, maybe before I didn't think were a big deal. And I'm starting to realize that, yeah, they, they really do overall add up, especially, um, affecting my like brain fog, going to sleep at a proper time and like not staying up late has been, um, helpful with brain fog and, and my chronic pain for sure. My final question before Sarah picks up and, and ends the podcast with you is looking back, and this is a hard question, if you had to do anything differently, what would that be, right? Because, I mean, I know for me, I can go on and on and on, right? But in your journey, looking back at your entire experience with Lyme disease, if you could do something differently, what would that be? Because so many people that are at an earlier stage of their journey can benefit from your answer to this question based on your now experience that you've had since then, right? So I'm just curious if there if there was something, what would that be that you could do, that you would have done differently? Um, yeah, I've thought about this a lot, and I think for me, one of the big things would have been trying to get a, a in control of the binge eating, and the really like just severe anxiety and depression that I had like a long a long time ago. I didn't really start trying to do anything like big about it until 2016. But I do think that played a big role in just crashing my immune system. I do wish that I had gotten a, a better hold on that. And then also um, caring a little bit more about getting tagged up with mosquito bites. <laughs> um, I know that uh, personally for me, like the essential oils and stuff don't do anything to distract, to keep mosquitoes away. Like I need the poisonous DEET on me. Um, but I do wish that I had paid more attention to those two things. Yeah. Um, before I ask the last question, I do want to just acknowledge and thank you for the vulnerability and sharing about your journey with disordered eating. Cause it is something that a lot of people don't talk about and I think it was really brave that you did. So I just wanted to thank you. Um, and then, so last question if um, someone you know and love comes up to you tomorrow with a tick attached to them, what would you tell them? What would your advice be? Ugh, I actually did have this happen with my mom. She had like 10 ticks, little ticks on her chest. Yeah, I like had a mini freak out. Well, what I would tell them to do um, is to try and remove, I don't know if this is actually like exactly what we're supposed to do, but I would suggest to remove them um, as close to like the skin and head as you can to try and get off on one piece. You definitely don't want to like break it off and have a piece in there without you knowing, but I would say remove them and baggy them. And um, 
you can like Google um, a place that can send off the ticks to get tested themselves to see what kind of bacteria they're carrying. Um, and that is what I had wanted my mom to do. And you can also go to your doctor um, and say, hey, I was just bit by a tick and I want a prophylactic dose of doxycycline. Um, but here's where you really got to be adamant about it being like six to eight weeks. Cause a lot of the times they'll just do, Hey, here's one week for you. That really doesn't do anything, but that is what I would suggest. Take it off as close to the skin, send it, send the actual tick itself. Don't kill it or anything. Send it out, get it tested and then go to your own doctor, maybe get tested, um, and ask for prophylactic dose. Hopefully they would do that. But sometimes you got to urgent care and doctor hop. Um, I do think it's important to get like an initial dose of antibiotics in though, just, just in case, just in case. Bria, are you on any social media or any online platforms? If people listening to this podcast want to touch base and reach out to you? No, I was, but it's just not conducive to my mental health. So I have no social media at all anymore. And look, we totally get that. We understand <laughs> completely where you're coming from. So Bree, I just want to thank you because to have somebody who's a nurse and somebody who suffered from Lyme disease and became a nurse is a really interesting transformation for you, right? To get all of that, that specific detail from you and to learn. I mean, I learned so much from you here today, Bree. So thank you so much for coming on, being vulnerable, being so open and honest with our listeners to share from your experience. And Sarah, thank you so much coming on from Canada, all the way from Canada, to co-host this, this podcast. You are an amazing co-host, Sarah, and I can't thank you both enough for joining the Take Bootcamp podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to our tick bootcamp interview with our guest, Brianna Jamshidi. To our listeners, we have a few calls to action. First, stay tuned as Brianna advances her medical career to give back to the Lyme community. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the tick bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit their website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash bite to view the blueprint. And fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of the newest Tick Bootcamp podcasts please take a minute to leave an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list or share feedback, please visit the Tick Bootcamp website at tickbootcamp.com. And thank you for listening.